Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition, another episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host, James Murphy, and welcome to episode number 1818, and welcome to Friday's edition. Hopefully, you are all having a wonderful, wonderful week so far. Hopefully, you're having a wonderful start to your weekend if you're already at that point, and we have a lot of stuff to dive into. Without further ado, let's just dive right into the quick hits we have breaking news out of san diego regarding one of the faces of baseball or if not one of the soon-to-be faces of baseball in fernando tatis jr where him and the san diego padres agree to a 14-year 340 million dollar contract extension that is nuts he is 22 years old and he has been an absolute star ever since he came into the league in 2019 he knows how to play I'm saying he's got swagger, he's got spice, he's got skill, he's got everything you want in a franchise player. Let me tell you that. His contract is 14 years for $340 million. To put that into perspective, that is the third largest contract in MLB history. Yes, in MLB history. I remember the days when Alex Rodriguez's mega deal was like 10 years for $250 million. Like I remember those days where that was the largest contract. Well, those days are long gone, and Tatis Jr. has officially made the bag. He is tumbling the bag, right? So the two other contracts in front of him, you guessed it, Mike Trout at $426.5 million, and Mookie Betts for $365 million, which he did sign with the Dodgers last year. Wow. To be in that kind of company at your age with um, the little uh, experience that you have, but this is a huge investment for the uh, for the Padres. This is a huge win for Tatis Jr., and it is well-deserved. If you break it down, that is roughly a little over 24 million dollars a year 22 and some uh, 24 and some change however you want to break it down it could be front it could be backloaded it could be flat who knows um the Padres have actually you know backloaded a contract before 
with um, Eric Hosmer. I'm sorry, they front-loaded a contract before with Eric Hosmer when they signed him a couple years ago. But I believe a contract like this probably should be just a flat contract, if, if you're asking me, because of the size of it and the length of it. This contract for Tatis Jr. solidifies himself as either, like I mentioned at the top of the segment, a face of baseball or a soon-to-be face of baseball because... Not just because of the dollar signs that he's making, but I've been on this train for a long time now because of what he brings to the table. And I think his contract is an epitome of what he brings to the table. He brings excellent defense here at shortstop. He brings someone who can hit the ball for contact and for power. He's got a cannon for an arm. He's got that swagger, that feel-good feeling. He's got that energy that you want out of a team leader. And he's soon going to be a team leader. Don't let his age get um, get you wrong or fool you because he will be a team leader for that Padres team with um, Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer over on first base and third base. So I do have to kind of bring it into uh, a comparison with another star player in Major League Baseball who has already who was young and who is still young and locked up their long term extension, and that's Ronald Acuna Jr. A couple years ago when he broke into the league, um, him and Ozzy Albies is the quote unquote baby Braves. Acuna Jr., you know, went off, had a wonderful uh, little half-rookie season or whatever it was, and he then signed a contract extension with the Atlanta Braves, and if we're looking at his contract in comparison to Tatis Jr.'s contract, there is no comparison on who got the better deal, obviously it being Tatis Jr., or if you want to look at it on the other side of the coin, that is the Braves, because they signed Acuna to an eight-year, $100 million contract, eight years, $100 million contract, yes. That's nuts. And that is a steal. That's a bargain because I actually just finished recording a YouTube exclusive video for my top 25 players in all of MLB going into the 2021 NF- oh, my NFL. Oh my goodness, the MLB season. And a little spoiler, but Acuna Jr. is very high on that list. I'm not going to tell you where because I don't want to spoil it. I want you to go watch it. But he's very high on that list. And for someone as high on that list as he is, you would think he'd be kind of making a lot more money. However, when he signed that contract, he wasn't the player he is now. And maybe no one really expected him to, maybe himself. But still, to break it down, he's making $5 million in 2021. And then it's going to jump to 15 in 2022. And then it's going to be 17 throughout the rest of his contract until the end of 2028. So if I'm the Braves, I'm looking at it like, I jumped on this young stud way early in his career, gave him a boatload of money, and now he's locked into a team-friendly contract for the type of player that he is, and that is um, a similar approach that the Padres took, you know, trying to lock in a star player early in their career. However, the dollar sign wasn't uh, a quote-unquote bargain for the Padres, to say the least. However, they do have the money to spend. They do have the room on their payroll to spend it, and this just shows them how this just so shows us how competitive that they're going to be for years to come and how very serious they are in being contenders in the playoffs for World Series for not only this year but for years to come as well. So, I think this is a huge win for both uh, both sides whether it's the Padres or Tatis Jr. Obviously a bigger win for Tatis Jr. because he's making a boatload of cash. But for the Padres locking up their cornerstone franchise player for the next 14 years until he's 36 years old wow 36 years old after a 14 year contract that's nuts to say but uh yes those man imagine making 340 million dollars in 14 years 
I wish, man. I wish. But, okay, let's move over to the next topic, and that is going to be the news that broke out of Philadelphia with them, the Philadelphia Eagles, sending Carson Wentz to the Indianapolis Colts for two draft picks. Yes, another quarterback shoe has dropped in the NFL where Carson Wentz has been traded to the Indianapolis Colts. So just a couple weeks ago, we um, we saw that Jared Goff got traded from the Rams to the Lions and Matthew Stafford from the Lions to the Rams. But this one is just strictly quarterback for draft picks, and this is the first deal of this kind we've seen this offseason so far, and we could potentially anticipate others along the way. So let me just break down the Carson Wentz deal for you really quickly. Um, obviously, the Colts are acquiring Carson Wentz. However, the Colts are giving the Eagles two draft picks, one 2021 third-round pick, and then the second is a conditional 2022 second round pick that could turn into a first rounder now the 2021 third round pick is locked and loaded as the third round pick which i believe is 85th um 85th overall for the colts i believe so obviously that's going to philadelphia however that 2022 condition conditional pick could turn into a first rounder like i said if if carson wentz plays 75 percent of his snaps or 75 percent of the colts offensive snaps or Carson Wentz plays 70% of the Colts' offensive snaps, and they make the playoffs. So there's a little two-way thing right there. You know, 75% if he just, you know, 75% of the snaps, period. No playoffs, nothing. Or he can only play 70%, and they just have to make the playoffs. And if one of those two things happen, then the Indianapolis Colts will be sending over their 2022 first-round pick instead of their 2022 second-round pick. A lot of twos in there, I know. It's just, woo. But if Carson Wentz can go back into his um, MVP-esque form that we saw in 2017, then this is going to be a deal, a steal, a bargain for the Colts because they obviously obviously need a quarterback. They need a cornerstone franchise quarterback with Phillip Rivers now retired. And I think Carson Wentz has the potential to be that cornerstone guy for the Colts because the Colts are a very good team. They have a lot of young, great pieces, whether it's on offense or on defense. With Philip Rivers now retired, even if he was still there, they're still in need of a quarterback because Philip Rivers wasn't going to take them over the hump. But Carson Wentz potentially can. Now, let's look at it from the Eagles' perspective here. With trading Carson Wentz, the Philadelphia Eagles will be saving $853,000 in cap space for the 2021 offseason. That's not good. That's not good. Because in addition to saving a little bit of money, they're going to be um, taking on a dead cap hit of $33.8 million. Yeah, that's a lot of money to just pay someone for not playing for you. Uh, let, me, let me rephrase that again in case you didn't understand that. So if you sign a player to a contract, you give them a bonus and or guaranteed money. And that bonus or guaranteed money goes on as a penalty if you trade them release them cut them whatever now just 20 months ago the uh, uh the eagles just signed carson wentz to a contract extension and now he's gone now i say this so uh, i i don't know how to phrase it because it is a poor financial decision from the colt uh, from the eagles to trade him and that is why I did not think that the Eagles would trade Carson Wentz because, yes, you save $853,000 in cap space, but who's that going to get you? One player, like a special teamer maybe, or like a back-end depth player? 
you're not going to get anybody. You're not. And now trading Carson Wentz, you are also losing $33.8 million for someone that's not even going to be on your team next year. So this is the full hammer on the reset button for the Philadelphia Eagles. Regardless if you like them or not, this is a dumb move, and you have to admit that this is a dumb move from them. Yes, they are looking towards the future. However, they're investing so much in Jalen Hurts. Now, I'm a big Alabama fan, but I didn't like him at Alabama because he wasn't the guy. He really wasn't. He was another version of Lamar Jackson. Yes, Jalen Hurts could throw the ball a little bit, but look who he was throwing to, and you can make that same argument about Tua today. Like, Tua was an excellent quarterback. He was more of a passer, but look who he was passing the ball to. Now he's in Miami, and he's kind of struggling to throw, uh, throw the ball to receivers. Granted, the Dolphins did have some injuries, but there's still no excuse. If you're a good quarterback, you should be able to throw it to almost anybody, right? To an extent, of course. But however, you know, we saw the little bit of Jalen Hurts that we saw in this past season for the past um, the few weeks towards the end of the season that we saw him. And it was a lot of the same stuff that we saw um, at Oklahoma was a lot of play action, a lot of read option, a lot of RPOs where he would either hand it off or keep it. And that's basically Lamar Jackson, right? (laughs) That's basically the Ravens offensive playbook right there is to do the read options, the RPOs, the play actions with the quarterback, Lamar Jackson. And yes, that's nice. And yes, that works um, from time to time, but long term, that's not going to work. And at the end of the day, Jalen Hurts, his play style, lost his job to Tua. Then he goes on to Oklahoma, has a wonderful season there, a incredible season there, you know, kind of rejuvenating his draft stock, becoming a second-round pick. But that's not the type of team that the Eagles are. They have some decent weapons on the outside. They have a lot of young, um, a good young offensive core. And obviously, yes, they still need a top-tier wide receiver, but... From the looks of it, there's no need to get one if you're just going to go with the Ravens playbook um, with Jalen Hurts, which we saw a lot of, you know, towards the end of last season. So it's just a very questionable move financially because it puts you in such a bind. Like I said, it puts you in a $33.8 million dead cap hit. And uh, it's so hard to A, rebuild and B, just build a competitive team unless they're planning for 2022, which... It seems like they could potentially be doing that because I don't know how much they're going to be able to do with a cap, a dead cap hit of almost $34 million. Now, when the Rams traded Jared Goff, who the Rams also signed to a contract extension not too long ago, the Rams incurred a dead cap hit of $22.2 million, which was um, the NFL record for dead cap hit, but until... This trade with Carson Wentz, which is now $33.8 million, is the record for a dead cap hit. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, I understand the Eagles wanting to, quote-unquote, kind of rebuild, look ahead, and you know try to get some assets back for a player that may not even want to be there. And I get that. Trust me, I do. And if moving Wentz will help you put you in a better position long-term, do it. I'm all for it. But it's going to be really hard to kind of crawl yourself out of a $34 million cap hit. That's why I was against trading him to begin with. Because I think Jalen Hurts was just a little bit of lightning in a bottle. And that's it. I don't really see him as a long-term you know, success option for the Eagles. Or just in general. And I hate saying that because he's an Alabama kid. But I'm just telling you what I see from the football field. And what I've seen with my eyes 
watching the game. But that's just me. I want to hear your thoughts about it because this is a definitely an interesting topic for discussion, an interesting topic for debate, whether it's the Fernando Tatis Jr. contract extension or the Carson Wentz trade from Philly to Indy. I definitely want to hear th- uh, thoughts about it. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, wherever you can find me, obviously, because that's where I'm at and that's where you're listening on, reach out to me on Twitter and on Instagram at Murphs underscore Boston ST. Shoot me a tweet, shoot me a DM, whatever. Email me, Facebook me, I don't care. I want to hear your thoughts about you know these two little quick hits quick that hits. we had because they're so interesting to talk about. Is it too early to sign Tatis Jr. to that big contract? Is Carson Wentz trade a good move for the Colts? Is it a good move for the Eagles? Should the Eagles be investing this much in Jalen Hurts? I want to hear your thoughts. You've heard my thoughts. So like I said, reach out to me at Murphs underscore Boston ST. And if you're listening on YouTube, just comment down below. Tell me what your thoughts are and let's get a conversation going on all platforms because this podcast is all about discussion, all about generating um, conversation. If we have friendly arguments, so be it. But that's kind of what sports is about, right? So let's move on to our next actual topic. And we're going to dive into a little news that came out of Boston um, for the Red Sox. And that is the good news of Chris Sale is on track after his Tommy John surgery. Now, for those that don't know, Tommy John surgery is the surgery of a ligament in your elbow to kind of, you know, fix the deterioration of the ligament after throwing, you know, so much baseball, you know, curveballs and whatnot. So pitchers or just players in general who throw too much or throw, you know, the wrong way or throw too much, you know, too many curveballs. The, the ligament in the elbow will start to deteriorate and start to weaken to the point of a lot of pain and a lot of agony. So they'll require surgery. And that surgery usually takes between 8 to 12 months to recover from. Now, Chris Sale got Tommy John surgery um, last March, so 11 months ago. So he should be on track to come back and pitch for this coming season. However, I do have to note one thing that we've seen in years past, times past that pitchers that come back from Tommy John surgery kind of struggle their first year back because trying to get into the flow of things, trying to feel it out, get their rhythm back because it's been you know roughly a year since they've last been on the diamond. Same thing with NFL players or other players who tear their ACL. Uh, it takes a long time to get back into it. Like we saw Julian Edelman, he t- tore his ACL. It took him a long time to really get back into the Julian Edelman that we know. Jordy Nelson of the Packers took him a while to become the Jordy Nelson that we we knew and love um I don't know why I thought of Jordy Nelson there for that um I I don't know why I mean there's other names but whatever I'm getting off track um Chris Sale coming back in 2021 to pitch after Tommy John surgery we do need him so much that pitching staff that pitching rotation needs him so much that's just a fact not opinion the Red Sox um rotation blows it blows so bad and Chris Sale coming back is a huge huge help however however we do have to have relatively low expectations for the fact that he hasn't pitched in over a year now he got the surgery done in March there was a little bit of spring training before um, COVID-19 shut down the 2020 MLB season but I don't know if he, I don't remember if he pitched anything in spring training. And if he did, it was very little because I don't think he did. So then the last time he pitched before that was at the end of the 2019 season. So it's been almost a year and a half since he's actually pitched and thrown on the mound. Now, 
I don't know about you. I don't know about anyone out there listening, but could you go 18 months or, or so without picking up a baseball and throwing competitively to you know these big major league hitters and have success? Me personally, no, and I, I would think the same for you as well, unless you're a professional pitcher. But you know, in Chris Sale's case, you know he is a professional pitcher, but it's been so long since he's been on the mound. There's a lot of routine, a lot of repetition, the mindset, the mentality, the psych behind it. And that's going to take some time to get back into because with anything you do, I mean, say you go away for a week on vacation, you come back that Monday morning, it just takes you like a few minutes or, you know, an hour or so to kind of get back into the groove, the back into the swing of things. It's the same thing in sports too. And Chris Sale is going to uh, fall victim to that just like everyone else does, but it is going to be good to have him back. But we do have to have low expectations for him because usually for major injuries like this, Tommy John, the ACL, which is in your knee, it takes athletes like a year after they come back to become their full self. Now, on the other side of that, we have to think about Chris Taylor's age, where he's going to be 32, I believe, um, next year. So his full year after Tommy John surgery, after he comes back, is when we can expect him to be the Chris Sale that we know and love. But at 32 years old, you know, wrong side of 30, it could affect him in a negative way. However, we do see pitchers, Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom in their 30s pitching very, very well. So hopefully that's something we can put aside and look past. One more thing about the Red Sox really quickly. Actually, I don't know how quick this will be because this is a topic of discussion that I've been wanting to have. I really do. So David Ortiz was on a podcast and he was being interviewed about today's game just a general question um about like hitters hitting home runs and just you know pitchers racking up a bunch of strikeouts and this is what he had to say and i thought this was very very interesting so from the podcast david ortiz and i quote we used to want to develop great hitters now it's all strikeouts with some home runs and it's straight up effing boring end quote so that got me thinking because I do feel the same way about it because you go, you watch almost any baseball game and you see players uppercutting the crap out of the ball because they want to swing for the home run, they want to swing for the fences, and they want to hit the ball 500 feet. Now some players can do that. David Ortiz was certainly one of those players back in the day who could do it. But he also knew when to take a double. He also knew when to take a single or even a walk. A uh, triple, maybe not so much. And there was times when he struck out a lot. Now we can look back, you know, almost over a decade ago to Ryan Howard for the Philadelphia Phillies, a great first baseman who didn't hit well for an average, but he hit like 50 home runs, 40, 50 home runs every year, but he had almost 200 strikeouts as well. And in Ryan Howard's case, it was either a double because the ball was off the wall or just straight up in the gap, a home run because he crushed the ball, or he struck out because he missed you know, his uppercut swing. And if you go look at some Ryan Howard uh, videos, it's all uppercut. Now, a lot of players in today's game are doing the same thing. They're not doing a level swing. They're not trying to get a line drive to go up the middle or to shoot the gap. They're straight up trying to uppercut it and lift the ball into the upper level um, of the stadium. So got me thinking because this is something I've really felt about for a few years now. And I did a little research. Hopefully, Hopefully, my research will be appreciated, and I think it would be. <sighs> okay, so I'm going to give the home run number first, because I feel like that's going to be a little bit more eye-popping. So, I look back the past six years. Now, I'm not including 2020, 
because a there's no statistics for it because it was a shortened season so i'm looking at full length regular 162 game seasons so the last one would be in 2019 and i'm going to look back from the previous six years before that which would bring us to 2014. so starting with 2014 i'm going to give you the list or the the number of home runs from that season in both the american league and the national league combined over the course of the whole season. So with 2014, we have 4,186 combined home runs from all players, all positions across both leagues. In 2015, we've had 4,909. In 2016, we've had 5,610. 2017, 6,105. 2018, 5,585, so a little step back. But then in 2019, 6,776, which shatters the previous record as I fix my mic, and it shatters the 2018 mark, which was over 1,200 less or around 1,200 less. That's nuts. That is absolutely nuts. It's exponentially grown every single year every five years we've seen it grown now let's look at the uh, start of the decade in 2010 we had 4613 home runs and then throughout the two uh, the you know 2000s I guess you could call you know 2000 to 2009 you know it kind of goes up and down between 5,000 and 4,000 and well why is that well I could tell you why because of the steroid era and, you know, in the early 2000s, you also see 5,000. But, however, I do want to take note of 1993, which was the last full year of baseball before we had the 1994 strike, which was the last strike that baseball has had. And if those that don't know, a strike is when um, one side kind of stops doing their job. So, for example, you know, the players decide to stop playing baseball and the owners and then the Players Association or the Players Union had to come to an agreement in order to get back to playing. Now, in 1994, there was a disagreement between both the players and the um, the owners, so the players decided to stop playing. To put that into real-life perspectives, let's say your 9-to-5 job, you and a bunch of coworkers are sick of the management or your bosses, and then all of you just decide to not work. But obviously, that's not going to work if it's just you and a couple of buddies. You need, like, a bunch, a bunch of people, like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, whatever. So I do want to look at 1993, which was the last full year before the MLB strike. And in that year, they had, where is it? They had 4,030 home runs, 4,030 home runs, which is 2,700 less than what we see here in today's game in 2019. And then obviously, how do they get players? How do they get fans back and watching? Well, by putting on a good show, because at that time, baseball was a relatively boring game. I mean, football was obviously in basketball and Michael Jordan was in hockey and an aging uh, Wayne Gretzky was still in, of course. So baseball was really taking a back burner because it wasn't really an interesting game because no one really wanted to watch, you know, where you just sit there for nine innings. And then, you know, ESPN came out with a documentary of, you know, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, you know, chasing the home run record at the time, which was 60, and they both shattered it. So, which, you know, came later 
in the 90s, but we look at, you know, 1993, 4,030 home runs, and we look at today, 6,776. And, well, that's not because of steroids, because steroids are obviously illegal in today's game. But let's just look at a few years after 93. So let's just start with 95, the first full season after the strike. You know, it's um, 4,081, 96, 4,962, 4,640 in 97, and then in 98, 5,064, 5,528 in 99, 5,693 in 2000, 5,458 in 2001, and, you know, so on and so forth up until, like, you know, the mid-2000s because steroids were legal at that time. So that's why we can explain that spike in home runs for the league. And then after steroids become illegal, it goes back down into the 4,000s. And there is one exception in 2009, 5,042, but, you know, we don't see that kind of number again until 2016. So what's the reason? What is the reason? Well, like what I said earlier, every player is swinging for the fences and it's so annoying yes home runs are awesome to watch yes a towering moon ball that almost leaves the whole stadium is so incredible to watch trust me i love it but when you see it every night in every game it gets a little annoying sometimes it really does because if they're not hitting the ball 500 feet and towering over the light tower then they're striking out and that brings me to my next research which is MLB strikeout total and I did the same six years from 2014 to 2019 obviously without 2020 because we didn't have a full season in 2014 we have 37,441 total strikeouts across the league in 2015 37,446 five more ironically 38,982 in 2016, 40,104 in 17, 41,207 in 18, and 42,823 in 2019. 42,000 strikeouts? What? I mean, what? I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. So let's look back at 1993, which is the, first, the last full season before the 94 strike. And total strikeouts league-wide was, uh, where is it, 26,310. Okay. And then in 95, when they come back, 25,425 strikeouts. The number actually goes down, ironically. But then, obviously, it goes back up a little bit over the course of the late 90s and early 2000s. But I wouldn't say that's because of steroids. I really wouldn't because... Even with when players were on steroids, I wouldn't really necessarily say that they were all swinging for the fences. I think a lot of the players were doing it to get a leg up on the competition against the pitchers. Now, you could just point to Barry Bonds taking steroids because, you know, he just hit a bunch of home runs. And you could tell the difference between when he was in Pittsburgh to when he was with San Francisco, how jacked he was and how juiced he was. Okay, there's an argument to be had there, but that he's just one player. Now, I'm not going to bore you with, you know, listing all the strikeout totals from 1995 all the way down to 2013, but I will say that it is a consistent, small progressional growth. Um, 95, 25,000, 96, 29,000, 97, 29,000, 31,000, 31,000, 31,000, 32,000, 31,000, 30,000, and you see that kind of growth 
throughout the 2000s. And then in the early 2010s, it's up to 34, 34, 36, 36, and then 2014, 37, like I said. So that is a small progressional growth. And that's not because of steroids. That's because players are starting to hit more or trying to hit more home runs. And when they don't, they're striking out because they're just doing an uppercut. And if they don't connect on the uppercut, they're going to miss because the whole bat angle is completely off. Rather, if they do a nice flat level swing, trying to go for a line drive, you know, if you don't get it right on the, the, the nose, it could either be a ground ball or it could either be a fly ball. But since all these players are doing uppercuts, they're either crushing the ball 500 feet or they're striking out. And we could see that because towards the late 2010s, whatever you want to call that decade, the numbers start to jump and spike a little bit as we can see 42,823 in 2019. It's nuts. It's nuts. And it's drowning the game out. And especially with baseball having a pace of play issue as it is already because the games are just three and a half, four hours long. And like I mentioned on a previous episode, you and I both don't have that kind of time to sit down for three and a half, four hours, night in and night out and watch the game. Because with 162 games, oh, we'll just catch the next one. Oh, we'll just watch the one tomorrow. Oh, I'm going to my buddies this weekend. We'll just watch the game then. But with football, there's only 16 regular season games. So every Sunday, you're going to sit and watch because it's three hours in and out and you have to wait another week. You know, it's not that easy to say, oh, I'll just watch it, you know, my buddies next weekend. Well, and you're, you're missing one sixteenth of your team's games. But with baseball and you miss one game, you got 160 others to watch, my man. So <laughs> baseball has a huge pace of play problem and they're trying to fix it with the home run and it's not working. And I did mention on a uh, ep- recent episode that baseball is going to try to deaden the ball. And David Price was, you know, bitching and complaining about like, oh, they said they weren't juicing them. And now they're going going back on their word about it, which I mean, it m- may be true that they did juice the ball it may not be true, but they are going to try to fix it to resolve the whole home run issue. And I commend them for trying to fix that issue, but we'll see if it works. We will see if it works because a ball that's hit 375 feet getting a foot or two knocked off of it. I don't know if it's going to do much. I really don't. So it's just going to have to be a wait and see kind of thing with baseball this year. I'm going to be really interested to see when they do play the full season, what kind of numbers we see towards the end of this year in terms of both home run and strikeout numbers. But wow, that was a lot. You know, I I do apologize if I kind of just went like on a rant right there. I mean, it was very you can tell how emotional and and how much this means to me because I mentioned before baseball is favorite my favorite sport but like I don't want the game to be perfect because no game is perfect but I want the game to be entertaining right whatever your favorite sport is whether it's hockey basketball soccer golf NASCAR football whatever you want it to be entertaining regardless right you don't want it to be just be boring you want some juice a little bit of energy right you know there's gonna be some dull moments as expected but like with baseball, though, you know, those home runs, those massive home runs are supposed to be energizing and, like, rejuvenating to give you life. But when you see it every day, or I should say when you see it six and a uh, 6,700 times a year, it's like, cool. The other guy can do it, too. So that's my thought and opinion about that. I definitely want to hear yours about baseball because it is a very controversial topic because there's so much going on in baseball with the whole rule changing and the pace of play being a major major issue so like i said before 
Definitely give me your thoughts about it if you're listening on Spotify, Apple, wherever, at Merce underscore Boston ST. If you're watching on YouTube, comment down below. I would love to hear all of your thoughts about it to see if you, you agree with me or not. Because if you don't, then I want to hear why. But if you do, I want to know why you agree with me, just so I know I'm not alone on this matter. But let's move on to something that I know I'm not alone on, and that is the Boston Celtics. Yes, the Boston Celtics. A um, a tough loss on Wednesday. Yes, I um, I got my podcast out. You know, before the Celtics were on, obviously ranting and raving about their great win against the Denver Nuggets. However, the next night they go out and lose to the Atlanta Hawks. <sighs> now. Excuse me, just had like a little hiccup there. I did say, got to win five of eight. And they're on tracks, hopefully. I mean, I don't know. Losing against the Hawks is something that really shouldn't happen. And it's, they play again against the Hawks again tonight. Uh, both games were are in Boston, so there's no traveling. I mean, they did have a day off because on Wednesday they were playing the second night of a back-to-back. But still, that's no excuse. It's the Hawks. They suck. They blow. They're so bad. They have Trey Young, and that's really it. I mean, <sighs> Trey Young dropped 40 on you. 40 points on you in 35 minutes. Excellent player. One of the best young stars that this game has. I mean, he was an all-star starter last year. Makes a lot of sense. And then you got Clint Capella dropping a double-double. You got John Collins out there going for 20. Cam Reddish hitting 13. And, like, they got some young players, not Clint Capella, but like they got young players. They got some good young studs on that team. So their future is, I don't want to say bright, but it's pointing upwards. For the Celtics, though, to lose with Tatum giving you 35, Brown giving you 22, Thompson giving you 14, the rebound numbers still aren't there. But like, <sighs> Semi Ojale got 25 minutes and scores nine points. Probably three threes, if we're being honest. I didn't watch the game, I didn't have time to, but. It's all he does. He just shoots threes in the corner. Uh, Javante Green, he nine points in 24 minutes. Pritchard, uh, Pritchard, 11 points in 23 minutes. So it's like, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know about the Celtics anymore, to be honest. And Grant Williams is out there for 22 minutes with four points. Neesmith out there for two points. It's like, what are you guys doing on the court? Like, yes, I understand your star players, Tatum and Brown, should be doing the bulk of the scoring, and they are. But, like, you need more from your, your role players and your rotation or your young players or whoever you want, whatever you want to call them, and you're not getting more. I mean, I'm not asking for them to go out and drop 20, 25 points a night, you know, coming off the bench. But, like, <sighs> Javante Green really getting 24 points, uh, 24 minutes and 9 points, really, really good for this team. No, and like, I like him. He's a nice, energetic player. He can throw down some great dunks, but like, I feel like you can do so much more with those minutes elsewhere. I mean, give them to Aaron Neesmith for all I care about because Neesmith has a insanely bright future. And you know, granted, he's not, you know, f- there just yet, and he's had some struggles. But like, I'd rather him get thirty minutes. I'd rather him get nine more minutes than Javante Green got, and still get those two points because at least I know he's getting more playing time. And getting that experience up. Does that make sense? So minus 9 minutes from Javante Green's 24. That brings you down to 15. You give those 9 extra minutes to Aaron Smith to go up to 30 minutes. And whether the point total is the same. Whether it's more. Whether it's less. It does not matter. 
at least I know those minutes are going to someone who is a part of the future with Aaron Neesmith, who I think the Celtics do like and love as a player. And if honestly, if I'm picking Javante Green or Aaron Neesmith, I'm picking Aaron Neesmith nine times out of ten. But they can't be losing these games against the Hawks. They really can't be. And this game tonight has to be a win because the Pelicans were going to New Orleans on Sunday. Zion's going to be a problem. Brandon Ingram's going to be a problem. Then you got Dallas on Tuesday. You got another game against Atlanta in Atlanta on Wednesday. You got a little road trip coming up. It could be a problem where you could lose all three of them, but you are in a position to win all three of them. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the Celtics go about these next few games. I, I Like I said, if they don't win five out of these eight, eight remaining games, starting with the Denver game on Tuesday, bold it, call it a year. I mean, there's no point. Because if we look at the standings, which is something I'm always going to refer to because it is so crucially important to have a higher seed for home field advantage, or I guess home court advantage in basketball's case, four and a half games out of first place, uh, half game behind the Pacers for the four seed, Raptors five games back, Knicks five and a half, Hornets five and a half, and then the Bulls are six games out. You are closer to being out of the playoffs than you are to the second seed. That makes no freaking sense to me because the Celtics are better than this. They should be better than this, but they're not playing like the better and they're not doing the right things. Danny Ainge needs to get his head on right and make this team better now before it's too late because any players that are on the trading block, like Andre Drummond or Blake Griffin or whomever from the crappy teams, even Bradley Beal, they're going to be gone sooner than later. And I know Beal has expressed that he wants to stay with Washington, but it would be kind of pointless for the Wizards to keep him because they could get a nice return in exchange for Bradley Beal. I mean, Bradley Beal would would work perfect here in Boston. He really would be. You go Kemba, Beal, Brown, Tatum, and then whoever you want at the center. Williams, Tice, Thompson, whatever. And you have that third scoring option with Beal. And that takes a lot of pressure off of... um, Jalen Brown, it takes a lot of pressure off of Jason Tatum. Now, obviously, trying to meticulate a trade package for the Wizards, it's going to be very complicated because it's going to be a ton of first-round picks, a ton of swaps, and probably three bench players. Probably like a Neesmith, um, Neesmith, Green, and then maybe maybe Grant Williams, maybe. I I don't know. I don't know because, I mean, you could have used those picks – Last year, um, the Neesmith pick or the Pritchard pick and traded and get something else, like an established player, that would be nice, right? Instead, your whole bench is just cluttered, cluttered with um, unexperienced players or young rookies. The only experienced player really on your bench is Jeff Teague. I mean, if we're going to be honest, because I'm not going to consider Robert Williams a, a veteran just yet because he's been in the league for three years. But those three years, he hasn't really done much. And granted, injuries and all that good stuff, the ton of potential. I'd like to see him get more minutes. Now that we're talking about um, Robert Williams, I'd like to see him get more minutes because Tristan Thompson ain't doing it for me at center. Daniel Tice is nice, but I'd like to see him come off the bench more. And Grant Williams isn't doing it either, and he's not a center. I'd love to see Robert Williams. He throws down great alley-oops. He plays good defense. Um his perimeter defense, you know, sucks abysmally, but his, you know, rim protection, his paint defense is very good, and he's an intimidating factor because when players go for layups, he can easily swat it and reject it. And I think a player like that is who the Celtics should be starting at for the center. 
So that player is not just like wanting the ball all the time, you know, trying to score all the time because Robert Williams, that is not his forte. <sighs> Celtics, man, the Celtics. You love them and you hate them. You do. They really um, polarize their fan base. I just, the importance of tonight's game against the Hawks is so crucial. It's so important because if they lose this, might as well lose and just tank, right? Like I said, you're closer to being out of the playoffs than you are into the playoffs. And if you're out of the playoffs, you're in the lottery. And granted, your percentage sucks at getting a high pick, being like the last team out. But might as freaking well, right? What else are you going to do? I mean, are you going to go and be the 8th seed and then lose to the 76ers or the Nets in the first round? Because that's exciting. I mean, that was nice, you know, seven years ago when you lost to the Cavaliers and LeBron James in the first round because you weren't expected to be good. But now you are expected to be good. You are expected to be a top-tier team in the NBA. And when you're not, well, it's a very depressing time to be a Celtics fan. It really is. And hopefully, with the trade deadline coming up in a few weeks, Danny Ainge makes some moves because if he doesn't or if he makes the wrong move, he should be fired. That's just fact, not opinion. But regardless, I want to hear your thoughts about it. Like I said, all throughout episode, and of course the heater's turning on as I'm about to do the outro, but it is what it is, whatever. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for downloading. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. This was episode 18, and it's so, so fulfilling to be this far into... This journey, I mean, almost at 20 episodes, it's crazy. The downloads are getting racked up, and I appreciate every single one of you for downloading, for listening, for enjoying, for reaching out to me, conversations, discussions, whatever. Um, We are over here at Murph's Boston Sports Talk in the works of a little giveaway. I don't want to give too much away about giveaway, but I don't want to give too much away, like too much information whatever about said giveaway because i want to keep it kind of under the table but i do kind of want to throw a little sneak peek you know a little easter egg right there so definitely stay tuned for that as more information and details comes around about that i'm definitely excited to kind of uh to shoot this out there for you know for those listeners to enjoy when it comes i'm not going to say what it is whatever but just know that that is on the horizon but nonetheless thank you so much for all your support i really hope you enjoy this episode don't forget to download listen enjoy share it all of that is appreciated um if you're watching on youtube comment down below if you haven't already and enjoyed this video definitely throw it a thumbs up as it shows me that you like the video and it supports the channel uh subscribe if you're new or if you haven't subscribed yet for more um podcast episodes and more youtube exclusive content If you're listening on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, Radio Public, wherever, reach out to me at Murphs underscore Boston ST on Twitter, on Instagram. That is one of the great ways to get to me if you're not listening or watching on YouTube. Thank you so much again, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I'm going to catch you on Monday's episode with hopefully a bunch of awesome new details, new information to dive into about whatever. Celtics win, Celtics lose. It's going to be a conversation to have regardless. And then maybe we'll have some breaking news out of the other sports or something to talk about regarding hockey, maybe. Who knows? We'll have to see. But until then, guys, I'm going to see you later. Peace.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.